Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Hello, I'm Thane Stenner, host of the B&M Bloomberg Brand Studio Smart Wealth Podcast, which is a monthly podcast where I get to host and interview uh, some very interesting people, entrepreneurs, uh, and, and top thinkers on various topics. So uh, very excited about today's uh, uh, podcast interview with Ben, ben Rabidou of North Coast uh, Advisors. So welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we've got, uh, I think, an incredibly timely topic, or topics, I should say, near and dear to the hearts of many Canadians, uh, Canadian investors, and that is Canadian real estate, uh, the trends, uh, the outlooks, uh, interest rates, household credit, and even macroeconomic issues. So uh, this should be a very, very uh, insightful session, uh, again, that I'm excited to, to host. My special guest today is Ben Rabidou. He is the founder of Northco Advisors based out of Ontario. Uh, which is a boutique research group covering uh, Canadian housing, macroeconomic issues, and household credit trends. He's also the founder of Edge Realty Analytics, uh, which is uh, provides similar services and research for the real estate industry and profession. Uh, ben and his team at North Cove are consistently ranked in the top five um, research groups in, in Canada by Brendan Wood International, which is voted on by uh, the institutional investor community. So, and, and on a personal note, I've been following Ben and his team's research for many, many years and have enjoyed the, the insights. So Ben, with that in mind, welcome. Thank you for taking the time on your busy schedule for being with us here today. Thanks, Shane. You're welcome. So as far as, you know, before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of this particular topic, Lots has been going on in 2022. We've had, uh, you know, a lot of things globally, you know, Russia, Ukraine, uh, lots of macro issues going on globally. But, you know, today's focus, we're going to try to, you know, focus more on the Canadian scene uh, and hear your, your insights. So before we get into uh, too much of the details, just maybe share with the listeners your background. Like, how long have you been in research? Like, you know, sure. How, how did you get here today? Yeah, it, absolutely. I probably had a fairly um, unconventional path to where I am today. So um, I started North Cove Advisors in 2013. And that came on the heels of running a public facing website where I was doing very much what I'm doing today, which is commenting on broad mm -hmm. economic issues with a lot of focus on housing and, and household credit. Uh, at the time was working in higher education and very much enjoyed that. Um, my wife still uh, works in education and, you know, very much enjoyed that, but found that um, I, I like the creative uh, process involved with, with research and complex macro issues. And in the course of writing this public facing website, um, realized that my subscriber list was primarily big, well-known household name institutions, as well as a number of you know, very famous sort of um, U.S. funds, and uh, you know, through through the course of time, ended up doing a lot of consulting work and realized that I was basically giving away something for free that that was effectively a could be a business. And so uh, that was the origins of Northco Advisors in 2013. 
Uh, and then since then, I've continued to, to focus on housing and household credit. I think my value add for my institutional clients is that I'm very much the feet on the ground. So not only do we take a deep dive view on all of the kind of traditional macroeconomic indicators, um, we sort of pride ourselves as, uh, on sort of being out there talking to practitioners in the space, be they realtors, mortgage brokers, um, developers, insolvency trustees, and really having a, a thoughtful um, view on what are the important dynamics beneath the headline data. And, and that's actually really helpful because by and large, you know, most big trends, by the time you read them in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star, they've been actively discussed within the industry for weeks or months. And so if, if all you're doing is looking at official data, you're typically well behind the curve. And then there's also other issues that you just can't get at by looking at the data. And so one of them that I've been very vocal on has been some of the underwriting issues related to mortgage fraud. And uh, I'm sure, Thane, you saw the CBC expose, the undercover investigation, and, and I, I've been very vocal on that, took a lot of flack for that. But I continue to maintain that we have an, an underwriting issue as it pertains to, to, to mortgage document and income verification in Canada. Uh, now, that's not something that you can get at by looking at the data. In fact, many times the data would lead you to the opposite conclusion. You have to get out of your office. You have to go out in the field. You have to talk to practitioners. And that's that's what I do. So a little bit like uh, Colombo, uh, the, the former investigator or police chief way back when about how he'd uh, do a lot of sleuthing and, and really kind of getting into the grassroots to figure out what's going on in kind of real current time. So thank you for that. Um, so let's let's get right into this. I mean, the the you touched upon it already, the CBC expose on mortgage fraud. I mean, how prevalent do you think it is actually today in the Canadian market? Uh, and maybe give us some uh, comparables, if you can, to that of the US and kind of what they went through during the, you know, uh, later 2006 to 2008 timeframe. Sure. I, look, I want to be really clear. When I talk about mortgage fraud, it's not analogous to what we saw in the U.S. Okay, And, and the primary reason is in the U.S., because you had this originate to securitize model where the lenders never bore any risk whatsoever, um, you had this heavy incentive structure to just overstate income to the point where people had no hope of ever even making their first mortgage payment. That was one of the big indicators that things were blowing up in the U.S. is you had literally got first payment defaults start to explode. That's not the same flavor that we have in Canada. And I want to be really clear on that. And so what I've maintained for a long time is once you understand the incentive structure in the Canadian mortgage market, it, it sort of makes sense why we have an issue with mortgage fraud. So let me unpack it if you'll give me a couple minutes. Sure. So if we sort of think about mortgages in Canada in three buckets, okay, the one that we tend to think of is your prime mortgages, whether that's insured or uninsured. So, you know, you you're talking 5% down, 20% down, but kind of the minimum down payment required uh, for those prime mortgages. And this is for people who have verified income, good credit. Um, and, and today your rates would kind of generally be 5%. But you, know, you go back a year and a half ago, they were like 1.1%. So rock bottom type rates. The next bucket below that is what we might call the institutional B lending or what's often called Alt-A in the US. And primarily, this is people who have non-traditionally verified income. It's not that they don't have income, but they may be business owners where it's not in their best interest to, to declare all of their income. We know in Canada, we're taxed to death. And so there's a lot of incentive there to sort of um, leave as much in income within the business as you can. 
Now, because of that inability to, to, to verify that income traditionally, they, the, typically those borrowers will fall into a different bucket where you might require 25, maybe 35% down. And the interest rates go up typically by about 200 basis points over prime, okay? Now you can get below that, you can get into true credit impaired and subprime and private lending and all that. And you don't really need to go any further. Once you understand that immediate incentive structure, okay? If I can go, if, I, if I'm a small business owner and I can show income, I can suddenly go from max 65% loan to value and 7% rates today to max 95% loan to value and 5% rates. So there is an enormous incentive to show verifiable income. And that's by and large the sort of fraud that we're seeing is people who are self-employed uh, need to show income and, and are, are overreaching. So I, the point that I would make, though, is that um, these folks intend to live in these houses. They intend to make the mortgage payments. They'll, they'll work hard to, to make those mortgage payments. So I'm not alleging by any means that this is like fraud for profit, that they're intending to rip off the banks, put the money in their pocket and like take off you know, to another country or something. Very different. And it's very different from the flavor we saw in the US in that these people by and large, at least today, have the capacity to make the mortgage payment. Where it's pernicious and where, where I get worried is um, what it implies to me is that we have structurally underpriced risk in the mortgage market. Okay. And so by that, what I mean is if we look at the loss characteristics of Alte, and if we use the US as an, as an analogy, what we find is that Alte mortgages tend to have the same loss characteristics as prime mortgages when the economy is booming. And it sort of makes sense because by and large self-employment in Canada at least tends to skew towards kind of, you know, construction related trades and real estate. And there's a lot of kind of pro-cyclicality to it. Okay. They do very well when the economy is booming, when, they, when the housing market's booming. But what we saw in the U.S. is once you, once the economy really sours, the loss characteristics on Alte look much more like subprime. So there's a, there's a dramatic volatility in the loss characteristics of Alte. And that's what concerns me. So if you then draw the straight line back to the banks, you, there's two issues. One is they've underpriced the risk on their uninsured book. But then perhaps more importantly, um, those loans carry a zero risk weight if they're insured by CMHC. And the risk is always that the insurers have the legal capacity to, to rescind the insurance coverage in the event that the loan was not underwritten properly. Uh, and there are no reserves for any of those losses. And I think, you know, look, that's a, that's a very hypothetical scenario, um, but it's much more plausible today than it was even a year ago that something like that might play out. And so, um, yeah, I don't want to belabor that point too much. I, I think it's an issue. I think it's highly geographically concentrated in certain regions, which makes sense. You, you would ask yourself what parts of the country skew heavily to, to self-employment. Um, and, and, and it's not downtown Toronto, it's not downtown Vancouver, everybody's salaried, you're not gonna have very much mortgage fraud there. Get out to certain suburbs and certain communities, absolutely, it's much more prevalent. And I think in those areas, it can be 25, 30% of new originations have some form of document fraud. You level it across the whole, the whole country, and I think it's you know probably less than 10%, but not much. I think it's that high. And you know some people would say, well, that's not a big deal. I would disagree, I think that's a huge deal. And, and one other thing, Thane, if you think about it, when we look at Stats Canada data, uh, it suggests that about 15% of the labor force is self-employed. Okay, now if we look at all-time mortgages, I mean they're a fraction of the, the outstanding balance, right? And so, so if you aggregate the outstanding balances of kind of like the home capitals and the equitables and the B2Bs and the Laurentians, so all the players that that operate 
um, in that space. I mean, it rounds to like percent and half of outstanding balances. And so a really simple thought exercise is like, well, where did all those borrowers go? Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like how, how, how do we have so many prime mortgages and no alt a when 15% of the labor force is self-employed. Right. So you can sort of back into these, you know, you can triangulate some anecdotes. You can talk to folks in the space. And, and it's very clear that in the last 18 months, this became a, a pervasive issue. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll see. We'll see where it lands from here. But it, it's not an issue as long as prices keep going up and the economy remains solid. It's, it's arguably much more of an issue when we get into an environment more like today. Yeah. So here we are early November um, 2022. And so, you know, most people I talk to, most things that I see, kind of paint to February of 2022. So earlier this year, kind of beginning to be the peak in some of the real estate markets regionally and then also nationally. So, so far, how, you know, maybe on a national basis and then maybe speak to some regionality, how much has the real estate market, residential real estate market corrected so far? And then I'll, I'll, and I'll zing you with the next question is, What's your baseline guesstimate as to how much more uh, downside we potentially have in a base case scenario and a worst case scenario? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're absolutely right. February was the peak. It was an interesting thing when I was talking to folks in the mortgage space, right? I realized in early 2022 that this was gonna almost certainly be a disaster in some parts, particularly in Southern Ontario. Because what I started to hear, right, it was interesting to me, like we saw at peak, so from late 2021 until kind of, you know, February 2022, we had house prices in Southern Ontario in particular, and I would consider Southern Ontario the epicenter of this current downturn, but we had house prices rising four to 5% per month over that time frame. And I would say to people in the mortgage space, because you would see these home sales that would come up and they would, in order to win a bidding war, you'd have to set a record in the neighborhood by like 15 or 20%. Like it was crazy. And I was saying to people in the mortgage space, how do you get that appraised? Like how does a bank, if you've just set the record in your neighborhood by 15%, like how does that appraisal even work? What are the comparables? And they said to me, and I'll never forget this. They're like, oh, well, what we're doing is we're just pushing for a really long closing and we're pushing the appraisal back as close to the closing as we can. And we're just kind of hoping that the market price catches up to justify the purchase price. I was like, holy shit. Like, so you're telling me if this market just, even even if it stops going up 4% a month, let's say it goes up 1% a month, those buyers are screwed. They're like, yes, yes, that will never appraise and they'll have to come up with a big down payment to make up the difference. So just to give you a flavor of like how crazy it got at peak and how clearly obvious it was that this was going to end badly, right? Um, And so that was the peak. You fast forward to today, if you use the official data from um, the Canadian Real Estate Association, the house price index is down about 9% from peak. But if you understand the methodology involved, um, that tends to do a poor job of capturing sharp inflections. So if you use something like seasonally adjusted average prices or median prices by certain um, geographies, typically most places are down anywhere from 10 to 20% from peak. So if you were to sell an identical home today, it would sell for about typically 10 to 20% less than it would at February peak. It varies by geography. As I said before, Southern Ontario has been hit very hard. Um, next, I would say is the lower mainland in BC, where typically you're off kind of five to 10%, depending on the property type. Um, 
the the prairie provinces are actually holding up very well and that's actually a view that i have that alberta broadly is just going to outperform for most of the next decade relative to the, the national average and then also atlantic canada is holding up very well for sort of some asyncratic issues we're seeing enormous interprovincial flows like a lot of people leaving ontario for cheaper homes out in out in atlantic canada population growth in atlantic canada off the charts so not surprising that those geographies are holding up relatively well but yeah, I mean, it's a bloodbath. We're seeing same unit sales thing, just to give you an example. So like we can see homes that sold unconditionally back in February, never closed, right? Because of course the financing fell through, the appraisals fell through. And so that seller was ultimately forced to relist it. And you can see like, you know, got a bid of 1.4 million in February, sold at 1.4, never closed. And they just sold it again. And it was like, you know, 850. Like we're seeing like monster declines like that. And that's same unit. That's like like for like over the course of just a handful of months. So this has been a very painful decline from peak for sure. Now to your question around how bad could it be? Um, I think, so I, I'm probably gonna ruffle some feathers with this. I think over the next few months, prices are probably gonna frustrate both bulls and bears because I think it's just gonna be a grind now until the spring. And the reason I say that is, when we look at the market balance in Canada, this feels like a tremendously weak market. And from a pure demand perspective, it is. But this is not a dramatically oversupplied market by any means. In fact, in fact, active listings, when we look across the country, the number of homes for sale are still about 50% below kind of normal levels of the last decade. Still a surprisingly balanced market in spite of sales falling off a cliff. Uh, and part of that is that sellers are just stubbornly kind of, you know, holding out listing their homes for sale because we've been conditioned in Canada to think that all housing downturns last for six months, right? Yep. We've seen that every other prior mini cycle and then it just rips back to peak. Uh, and so um, I think because the market is not enormously imbalanced, a lot of the severe price declines we've seen from peak are a result of that dynamic that we just discussed of failed closings, highly distressed, forced sales effectively. And those are by and large work their way through the system. And so I think over the next few months, we're gonna just kind of grind, it'll be a little up, little down, grind sideways. The big tell is gonna be February, well, let's call it spring next year, uh, as we enter that key spring selling season. And there, I think you're gonna get an inflection one way or the other. My bias is that it's gonna be down. I, I don't think we have to overthink this. Interest rates at these levels mean that to afford a typical home in Canada, if you're buying it today, your mortgage payment's about 45% higher than it was just a year ago. So we can talk about strong population growth, which is absolutely a strong long-term fundamental. You talk about potentially underbuilding of single family in certain regions, all of that is true. None of that's gonna matter until we see some resolution in this dramatic deterioration in affordability. And I think that likely gets resolved by another baseline another 10% lower in prices through 2023. Uh, but, you know, that's probably not going to break lower until the spring of next year and, and only if we see a significant increase in supply. So we're going to pause right there. Uh, some excellent questions with my special guest, Ben Rabideau, uh, North Coast uh, advisor. So we're going to pause, take a quick break and we'll be back. So please uh, continue listening. In. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Well, welcome back, everybody. My special guest today is Ben Rabideau of North Cove Advisors, speaking about the real estate and interest rate and household uh, consumer uh, trends here in Canada today. 
you know, I had uh, David Rosenberg on here a few months ago and his his forecasts on the U.S. real estate market was that they were likely due for up, upwards of a 30% real estate correction uh, from a couple months ago. Um, now, that was on the U.S. side, right? They have a different mortgage structure than they do in Canada. Um, yeah, but Thane, let me just jump in right there. Let me just say that if that's if that's true, and look, David Rosenberg's an incredibly smart guy. I have huge respect for him. Um, I mean, you gotta you gotta imagine if that's true in the U.S., then my base case is way light, right? We're going to see a much more severe downturn here because when I look at the U.S., you've had clear underbuilding for a decade. I mean, single-family housing starts are still what sixty percent of what they were before the financial crisis. Um, and you've got fixed mortgage rates. So most of those borrowers are not being forced to reset higher, right? And you've got households that have just a, they've undergone a very significant deleveraging. The capacity to absorb higher rates is much higher in the States than it is here. And so I would, I would certainly take the under on that. Like, I don't think we're going to get to 30% in the US by any means, but if, if Rosenberg is right on that, um, it, then that's just incredibly bad news for Canada. We, we've got a much deeper decline than I'm envisioning. And, and he's a difficult guy to argue with. He's incredibly bright. Yeah, fair, fair comment. That's what makes up uh, the marketplace is various perspectives, right? Um, so as far as interest rates go, I mean, how, you know, I don't know how, how much you prognosticate or forecast on rates, but kind of what, what do you think will occur on interest rates here short-term rates and long-term rates here in the next 12 months, if you had to, again, guess. Sure. Well, I think we're within 50 bips of the Bank of Canada peaking. Um, I don't think they can go much more. And the reason I say that is it's so clear to me that rates at this these levels, if they hold here, are enough to break a lot of things in the Canadian economy. We just have way too much leverage. Um, now, I don't think they're going to be cutting rates anytime soon, even in a recession. Um, and, and the reason for that, uh, and this gets maybe a little beyond my kind of traditional wheelhouse, but I do think that we're seeing more structural inflationary pressures related to um, deglobalization, population dynamics, particular aging societies in, in, in some parts of the world where we're used to outsourcing our labor. But also importantly, just a massive underinvestment in raw materials across the commodity sector. Um, and, and I think because of that, we're just going to have a sustained inflationary pressure for most of the next decade. Um, and I think that argues that interest rates, the new normal is not zero, right? Rates are not going to reset back to zero. Even in a recession, the Bank of Canada, I'm sure, is going to cut rates, but uh, you know, maybe down to two and a half, right? Maybe down to three, not back to zero. And, and I think what's really important is, uh, you know, I was reading Lynn Alden's work recently, and I think she's great in terms of just just thinking big picture. And she made this great point that it's all about the area under the curve. And I thought this is bang on. So the idea is if you have interest rates, just use a hypothetical, let's say interest rates were to spike to 7%, but then a year from now they're back to, you know, two and a half percent. That is far less damaging to an economy than if interest rates were to jump to 5% and then stay there for a few years. And the reason for that is um, in Canada, people are always surprised at the resiliency of borrowers and the ability to tread water, even when they're in serious financial problems. And, and a great example is when I talk to insolvency trustees, I remember uh, one guy I talked to regularly, Scott Terrio, great, great contact. You may want to have him on your show at some point. 
Uh, and I remember him telling me, he said, you know, look at people come into the office and we'll look at their finances and we'll be like, this guy is a train wreck. He needs to file a consumer proposal today. And he said, they'll see them a year later and they'll finally come in and, and file. He said, like, we would have thought this guy has weeks before he hits a wall. And people just managed to find a way, right? And, and I think that's really important in housing is just that, you know, there's no forced selling until people really are forced to sell, right? And, and, and it takes a lot to get to that point. People will sell things, they'll tighten their belts, they'll take on other jobs, they'll just, they'll bring in renters, like they'll do whatever they can. And so, you know, if we're here a year from now and the overnight rate is down to two, let's say, then probably this is just a run of the mill, sort of normal housing slowdown. And then we're back to the races again. But if we're here three years from now and the overnight rate is still north of three and a half, which means interest rates, mortgage rates are kind of five, five and a half. Man, I just think that there's just enormous downward pressure on this market if that's the case. Got it. Got it. So if you had to kind of categorize the most expensive, still most susceptible markets regionally today in Canada, what would you say they are? Sure. So, um, I think first and foremost are some of the suburbs that are far, far distance out from the, the main centers, which, which happened to be the areas that were bid up the most during COVID. Um, and along with that, we, I guess within that, you'd say that the recreational areas are most exposed. Recreational properties have seen, I mean, many places that I look at in the country up 150% off of kind of early 2020 levels. I mean, just an incredible rise and, and then they're falling hard off a of peak. And the problem is those are hyper cyclical areas, right? They're highly discretionary. They're the first thing that, that tends to fall during recessions. They fall the furthest. Those areas concern me a lot. Um, and so I would say the suburbs are, are in a lot of trouble. Um, recreational properties, likely tremendous downside. I'm getting more concerned about condos. What, what we're seeing is that the price weakness is migrating from single family where it started just due to pure affordability issues. It's now migrating into condos. And I think one of the things we really need to watch, one dynamic that is not yet being fully appreciated is the risk in the pre-construction market around closing on these new purchases. And so one of the interesting conversations I had recently was with a real estate lawyer in Toronto. And I remember him saying, you know, for years he would see people come in, he would have to review the pre-construction <laughs> contracts, go over it with the buyers. Um, and he said that the typical home buyer uh, sorry, pre-construction condo buyer, just to be clear. So this is buying a, a new unit off the developer that's not going to be delivered for a few years. Okay. And he said, this is somebody that already had a house. This was an investment. They were very clear. They were going to buy it. They were going to close on it. They were going to rent it out. Maybe it was going to be for their kids in the future, but, but that was your typical buyer. And they had one of them. And he said in the last like, year and a half, like every other person that would come into his office had multiple assignments or sorry, multiple pre-construction contracts. And um, they all intended to flip them before closing or assign them. And he made the point that not only were they intending to assign them, but they had no choice but to assign them because they couldn't close financially on all of them. Yep. And to me, that's like a really concerning dynamic. We have almost 160,000 condos being built across the country. Some non-trivial portion of those have been bought by speculators who have no ability whatsoever to close and will be forced to have to sell them. Uh, and so that's a dynamic that really bears watching, particularly since, you know, we can sort of deduce that investment demand has diminished dramatically in the pre-construction market. We've seen, you know, new housing sales in Toronto fall 90% year over year. 
as of the last month with just a stunning decline. So, so, you know, that's a major area to watch is, is the condo market in big cities as well. You preempted my next question. That was, you know, I, I saw a lot of articles written this last year around investors, quote unquote, investors in, you know, investing second, third, fourth properties, et cetera. So how would you define the difference between an investor and a speculator? Yeah, it's a great yeah. question. I think it just comes down primarily to cash flow, right? But but let me actually, let me take a step back and frame why that's such an important question. Um, we got great data from the Bank of Canada that looked at uh, land registry data and came to the conclusion that about a quarter of resale transactions in Ontario were, were being purchased by multiple property owners. And so primarily investors. Um, and that's up sharply from kind of 18% pre-pandemic. And I may be off a, a touch on the numbers. And, and you might say, well, that's not a huge number. That's kind of like, you know, whatever, 20, like mid-20s from 18. That's not a huge move. But what it implies is that's nearly half of the incremental increase in demand post-COVID is strictly from an increase in investors. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important dynamic. Um, now, to your point, are they investors or are they speculators? I've got a chart that I, where I update this index every month where I look at um, the estimated cash flow if you were to buy a resale condo in Toronto and you were to finance it at prevailing interest rates at 80% loan to value and rent it out at prevailing rents. What does your cash flow look like? And these are so steeply negative cash flow, it's stunning, right? I mean, and they have been for a few years. I mean, increasingly so in the last 18 months, but, but really it's been negative for years. And so I would define an investor as, as someone who uh, purchases a property that has sustained cash flow, uh, is not feeding that fire every month via negative um, you know, ne negative um, carry and, uh, and and has an intention of generating most of the return via the income stream as opposed to banking on capital appreciation. That is not the typical investor that we've seen in the last couple of years that's dominated this market. Yeah, so the flippers come in and that tends to be kind of an indication of kind of a later stage of portion of the cycle, right? So, um, so maybe talk to our audience around uh, trigger rates in mortgage documents um, and kind of how they're, they seem to be catching people by surprise more recently as rates have jumped up a lot. So just maybe conceptually explain how they work and kind of uh, for those that don't know. Sure. Bit of a lengthy discussion, so you'll have to give me a couple minutes to unpack this. It is a strange concept, especially if you've got American listeners here. Um, it's a strange thing. In Canada, uh, most of our variable rate mortgages still have static payments. Okay, and so what that means is at origination, the lenders will establish a payment. And then if the overnight rate starts to rise and variable rates move up, it just means that less and less of that original mortgage payment is being applied to principal. In effect, you are extending the amortization, in some cases dramatically. Uh, now, eventually you hit the point, oh, actually, before I get to that, let me just comment quickly. It's interesting, issue dynamics here. Um, there are really only two major banks that have true floating payment mortgages, uh, and that's BNS and National. And so it's gonna be really interesting to watch in the next few quarters how their borrowers are responding because their borrowers are, are seeing 
rising payments as opposed to the other banks who have sort of tried to cushion their borrowers via this fixed payment scheme. Ooh. Okay, so back to the example. Once the interest components um, or the interest payments are so large that the original mortgage payment no longer covers even interest, then you've hit what's called the trigger point. Uh, I'm sorry, a trigger rate. Um, yeah. and, and at that point, then one of several things happens depending on the banks. Some banks will insist that you actually raise your payment. Uh, and, and it's interesting to note that uh, when they ask you to raise your payment, it's, it's a token amount over the outstanding or the required interest component. Okay, so it's, you know, it'll be the interest component plus 20 bucks, right? So, so not a huge hit necessarily. What's even more interesting is we have a couple banks in Canada that have taken the approach that they're not gonna raise payments. What they will do is they will allow uh, borrowers to negatively amortize the loan and capitalize the deficiency on the outstanding mortgage balance. And so in other words, if your original mortgage payment was $1,000, but now the interest component alone is 1,200, you have a $200 monthly deficiency. And these certain banks, which for now shall remain nameless, have decided that they'll take that 200 bucks and apply it to your mortgage balance. Now, here's the interesting part for your Canadian listeners. If it's an uninsured mortgage, they will let you do that up until 80% loan to value, okay? At which point you've hit your trigger point. So you got a trigger rate and a trigger point. Trigger point is once the negative amortization reaches 80% on an uninsured. Yep. But crucially, if it's an insured mortgage, which means taxpayers ultimately are backstopping it, the banks will allow negative amortization up to 105% loan to value, which is insane. Okay, now why this scheme is so pernicious is it smooths the payments during the initial term of the mortgage. But if you roll that forward and you look at what happens at renewal, now, you know, fast forward a few years, in Canada, our, our loans generally are our maximum five-year terms and then you're subject to an interest rate reset. So at that renewal, the original borrower now faces a larger outstanding balance because they've been negatively amortizing it, higher interest rates, and now they have to revert to a shorter amortization because they still are, are bound by that original amortization schedule. So during the first term, the bank said, okay, we'll let you amortize out to, you know, a hundred years amortization for those first five years to keep your payments flat. But the moment you renew, now you're back to now 20 year renewal, uh, 20 year amortization. And, and so they really get hit on three fronts. It, it, this is going to be incredibly problematic. But what I would say, Thane, on all of this is that um, when I think about the dynamics at play in the Canadian mortgage market and what concerns me in the next year, the trigger rate dynamic is actually very low on the risk for exactly this dynamic. The banks have, are, have been very good at kicking the can down the road. And this is not a story for 2022 or 2023, but it is a huge story if rates stay this high for 2023, or sorry, 2024, 2025. Got it. So in essence, it's elongating their amortizations at the end of the day. Really? It, it is, but it's but only for that first term, right? And the moment they, they renew on the next term, it resets back to the original amortization schedule on a larger mortgage balance and a higher interest rate, which means the borrower effectively gets hit on three fronts. Well, it's, plus, it's a really nasty surprise. Plus, the, there's the assumption that, you know, from a uh, valuation point of view, that the property is worth, you know, in the same zone where it is today, right? So you can you can get into a negative feedback loop, I think, pretty easily. So 
So talk to me about your institutional investors that, you know, pay Northco for your research. Like, what are they doing with that research? What are you finding that they're doing? Or like, how are they trying to profit from that research? Yeah, well, first off, I'm not typically privy to any trades that they put on. I, I want to be really clear. I don't have a specific coverage um, universe. I don't have a set of buy sell recommendations on stocks. That's not really how I operate. I'm much more providing the high level um, context around some of their investment processes. And so, you know, I'll just speak very broadly, but I've got clients that are in more of the global macro space that are looking at rates and currencies. Um, I certainly have some long short equity clients that would be looking at, I don't know whether it's a pair trade, a, you know, involving financials in Canada versus financials somewhere else. I don't know if it's an outright you know, short of, of certain financials or um, I think even more compelling at this point is the consumer discretionary plays um, because I, I think that's very clear that we're heading for a steep slowdown in spending. Um, and then I, I think uh, important to note, I, most of my institutional clients are long only um, and, and a lot of the big well-known kind of Canadian mutual fund companies. And there, I, I think the value add for them is they just don't want to get blindsided by some idiosyncratic credit blow up. Um, I don't mind saying we've been pretty good at sort of sniffing out issues in the, the mortgage space. So we were ahead of home capital, had a very public um, legal battle with uh, a mortgage entity that, that uh, where the founders are, have been charged with criminally with fraud and they sued me for defamation. Judges ultimately threw it out, but, but I, you know, it was very clear that, that there were shenanigans happening there. Yep. And so that's kind of what we do. You know, oftentimes poor underwriting issues in certain lenders is sort of an open secret in the, in the mortgage space. And uh, if you spend enough time talking to those folks, you sort of get a sense of where the credit flare-ups might show up. Um, and so that's kind of where I try to help clients. Okay, so we'll take a quick break there. Uh, please uh, stay stay on listening as we are interviewing with Ben Rabideau. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Welcome back. I'm with uh, Ben Rabideau of North Cove advisors, uh, listening to his insights on the Canadian real estate scene. I don't want to know specific names, um, but you as an investor, would you would you be a buyer of Canadian banks at this point, or you would you be waiting based upon the signals and the signs that you're seeing in the system today? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm pretty clear with my clients it's above my pay grade to figure out what is priced in and what what risks are currently being reflected in various share prices. So I don't have buy-sell recommendations. If you're asking me personally what I would do, no, yeah. I do not own Canadian banks. Um, and I think you can make the argument from a price earnings perspective, they're not dramatically expensive by any means. From a price book perspective, they're maybe still a little above kind of global peers. Man, I just think there's there's just so many ways that things can go wrong here in Canada. Um, it's, you know, banks at the end of the day are a levered play on the state of the economy. And uh, I just, it's not, it's not a area I want to play in, but that's me personally. I, I've got lots of institutional clients that own huge slugs of these Canadian banks. And, you know, if you're a long only manager and you've got a Canadian equity mandate, like, what do you do if you're running 
billions of dollars, you can't not own Canadian financials, right? <laughs> and so um, for them, it's just a matter of trying to figure out how much you want to be overweight, underweight at various times, where the risks are. And that's, I mean, that's yeah. where I try to help them. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's not my, the, the Canadian banks at this point are not my cup of tea. Yeah. So as far as uh, what, what about, you touched upon it a few minutes ago on the mix or mortgage side of things. Um, and and uh, I followed the story as to what you went through quite closely, and you were ultimately vindicated and right on what you had been pointing out. Uh, so it's good that the legal system worked. What um, are you seeing? So, how much distress are you seeing in the mortgage arena right now, the MIC arena right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the mix are going to be a great leading indicator of broader stress within the credit ecosystem. Um, and so to, to answer your question, when I speak to folks in the space, there's definitely issues surfacing. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's alarming at this point. And there, there's sort of multiple dynamics at play. One is just that liquidity broadly is drying up in that space. And so um, we're seeing for the first time that I've, I, I can recall, we're seeing instances where people who have taken out these private loans um, are not being renewed. And, and this is really important for a lot of your listeners to understand is that in Canada, we have this strange dynamic where the weakest credit are all one-year terms, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, subprime credit, even with the home capitals and the equitables, the institutional guys, generally one-year terms, a handful of two-year terms. And once you're below that into that true private, that kind of peer-to-peer -peer or the, the mortgage investment corporation space, which is very loosely regulated, um, overwhelmingly one-year terms. And so, uh, you know, that, that raises all sorts of issues. But one of them is that because you're backing this private lending space with very flighty capital, typically from retail investors, um, it means that they're prone to seeing a contraction in liquidity. And when liquidity contracts, like, what do you do? If your investors are asking for redemptions and you've got one-year loans coming up for renewal and you don't want to renew them because you can't, because you're like, what... What does that look like? Like we're in the very early stages of that, but it looks like some element of forced selling. Um, yeah. I'd also just comment separately on that. You know, one of the underappreciated risks for the institutional non-prime lenders, so let's say the home capitals and the equitables, is that for years now, this booming private market liquidity has been effectively a rescue lender for their distressed borrowers. <clears throat> and so by that, you know, I would say that if a borrower with home capital, just to use one example, fell behind on their mortgage. Home Capital could issue a letter saying, find another lender or we will issue, or we will commence legal proceedings against you. And they're very efficient at this. And so they would go to a mortgage broker and sure enough, as long as they had equity in the property, they could always find a private lender to take out the, that B mortgage. Bef now this is important. This typically, this is, happens before your 90 days of in, in, in arrears. And so it's never recognized as a delinquent mortgage. And so that's why when you look at these non-prime lenders in Canada, you're like, well, how in the world are their delinquencies so absurdly low, right? Like they're like basically where the banks are of prime. That's an important dynamic. And now that we have this dramatic reduction in private market liquidity, it's absolutely going to impact their stated arrears because those borrowers now do not have sort of exit liquidity uh, or rescue liquidity from, from a, a, a lender that's one tier lower. Right. Uh, and so that we're seeing it there. But I, I don't want to overstate it. This is very early days. I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a fairly large mortgage investment corporation. I said, how are your delinquencies? He's like, we're dealing with four or five right now. Um, that's out of a portfolio of, you know, 
over a hundred loans. And I said, well, how many delinquencies have you dealt with in the last couple of years? Says, none. It's been years since they've had to deal with a single delinquency. So, you know, it, the step function is huge, but the absolute numbers are still relatively low. Right. Cool. Um, and I would also say that I, I track some forward credit indicators, things like credit card uh, delinquencies, credit card payment rates. You, you can get all that from the credit card trust. It's very timely data. Right. So we've already got September data. We get in some cases, even some October data. Um, and yeah, the delinquencies are ticking up, payment rates are starting to stall out, like all of the early indicators are there that things are rolling over. But I mean, it's, it's not alarming, right? It's still on an absolute basis, delinquencies are still remarkably low. Um, and, and so th that gets back to that point that people tread water longer than you think, right? Yeah. And this is just the, like, we're in, you know, we haven't even started the first inning. It's like the, the teams are getting warmed up. Right, and, the, and this is gonna probably be a very long process and, and it has not yet even started as far as I'm concerned. So how would, excellent comments, uh, Ben. How, how would you uh, juxtapose the Canadian household uh, on the credit side currently versus the US household? Like, where are we in comparison to our neighbors down south? It's not comparable. If you look at the US, the household debt service ratio is near all time lows. You've seen a dramatic uh, deleveraging following the financial crisis. Uh, it's been the opposite here in Canada. We've continued to grow our outstanding debt balances. Um, debt service ratios are not at the highs, but they're trending. They'll be at the highs by this time next year, the highest we've ever seen. Um, and that's a great forward indicator for, for delinquencies across the credit space. Uh, it's just not comparable. The Canadian households, by every metric, are far more vulnerable. We've got a higher share of variable interest debt. We've got a much higher share of short-term debt. Nobody can lock in for 30 years here in Canada. In the U.S., at least you can lock in for 30 years. Right? Right. Nobody's paying 7% rates in the U.S., right? Yeah. Unless you're buying a home today. Yeah. But by and large, those, those people have 30-year protection. We do not have that in Canada. Mm. Um, and, and then more concerningly is just when you look at the structure of the economy, um, Look, Canada's done incredibly well coming out of COVID. We've seen just an economic boom for years, but it's really important to recognize that so much of that boom has been a derivative of both housing and the wealth effect spinoff of housing. And so you can see that in things like residential investment, which is you know, new housing construction, renovation spending, and transfer costs, which is still almost 10% of the economy. Now, for reference, in prior housing cycles in the 70s and 80s, it, it never got to even 7%. So we're at a record by a wide margin. And then if you lay on top of that, things like household consumption expenditures. Coming out of the COVID downturn, residential investment and household consumption have been about 95% of real GDP growth. Uh, and, and so when we start looking at how much of the Canadian economy, how much of the Canadian labor force is directly and indirectly levered to this ongoing housing and credit boom, it is not comparable to what we see in the US. The US, for all their faults, are a far more vibrant, far more diversified economy than we are. And, and to me, the big concern is at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve will drive the bus on global interest rates. Mm -hmm. And if their consumers can sustain much higher interest rates, it's not really their concern that Canadians can't. And that's kind of the nightmare scenario is that they continue to tighten to the point where it causes Canadian households tremendous pain, but has not yet curbed domestic demand stateside. And, and we could very well see that dynamic play out. And that's like kind of your nightmare scenario if you're, if you're looking at, you know, Canadian, yeah. the Canadian economy. Yeah, well said. So the, 
So I've always wondered, just pivoting to another point, I've always wondered why nobody's come up with an official ratio of, um, and I don't even know what to call it exactly. Maybe maybe you'll help me here. But uh, in regards to, you know, Reese says, okay, real estate's up 5% uh, or down 10%, but they don't do a ratio based upon the equity put in. Right, leverage on real estate historically has been fabulous because real estate's gone up over time. Interest rates for the last forty years have come down up until recently, and but you know I, I find it interesting nobody's actually invented or or marketed kind of a ratio. You know, it's a typical twenty percent down down payment or equity in a property. Um, nobody talks about okay the ratio. You know how much you're winning or losing. Based upon your equity, not your overall value of the property. But uh, have you ever seen anything like that? Is there any anything in? That's an interesting point. Like, it'd be tricky to get at. I mean, I guess you could wait. Like, you do have some measures out there. Things like um, average owner equity across yeah. all all homeowners. Right. We have data like that, so you can kind of. It's less than you'd think, and it's it, or sorry, it's the equity position is higher than you think. Correct. Only because it's really interesting. Um, if you if you bucket Canadians into three buckets, you've got renters, and then of the remainder, you've got homeowners with no mortgage, homeowners with a mortgage. It's almost a third, a third, a third, right? Yeah. And so what's really interesting is all this household debt that we talk about in Canada is concentrated in one third of the homeowners. Yeah. Or sorry, one third of the residents, half of the homeowners. Correct. Right. But because you have only half of homeowners that have a mortgage at all, the average equity level is skewed very high, right? It's like 70 odd percent, 75%, let's call it, average equity. But you know, there's that saying that you never wade across a river that's three feet deep on average, right? Because of (laughs) course, it's a good chance you're gonna drown. Uh, And it's not so much the average that measure, that that matters, it's the the tails of the extremes, right? Right. And and that's where those calculations get really challenging because I would make the argument that we've seen an explosion in leverage and in particular in what you might call like shadow leverage, people who are borrowing off of one residence to purchase a second property. We don't have to even speculate on that. We have great, actually the Bank of Canada had great data on that. That chart looks exactly like what you'd expect massive homeowner uh, homeowner equity withdrawal to purchase additional properties. Well, on the bank's balance sheets, that additional property is 75 or 80% loan to value, but the down payments come off the HELOC on the primary, right? So for for all intents and purposes, it's 100% LTV, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we've also seen this explosion in parents gifting money. And it's like, well, if there's an expectation to repay, like, is that really 80% loan to value or is that 100% loan to value if the parents have gifted? Do, Do you know what I'm saying? And so we've had an explosion of that type of dynamic, both anecdotally and, and to some extent within the data that we can we can quantify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of that makes those those calculations challenging. But there's no question that Canadian homeowners have made out like bandits because we have seen just an incredibly long stretch of, of almost uninterrupted equity gains. And if you're leveraging off a CMHC loan, you've got 20 to one leverage day one and the house prices are ripping five, 10, 20% a year. I mean, you are crushing it. I mean, at peak, we, during the COVID peak where house prices were really ripping, we had the typical home in Canada was rising in value by $200,000 in one year. And so that's the equivalent because that's tax-free gains to yep. the principal, on a principal residence. 
That's the equivalent as if your home has earned $350,000 in income in one year, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it was stunning. We saw these stunning increases in equity. And mm -hmm. of course, that had all sorts of spillover effect to consumption and big ticket expenditures. And all of that is now in decline. We just saw the largest decline in household net worth quarterly on record. And we've now seen the largest two quarter decline in seasonally adjusted average resale prices going back to at least 1988. Uh, and so this dynamic, that kind of equity consumption conveyor belt, all of that's we're now working in reverse. Hmm. Interesting. So final, well, I guess I've got two final questions for you, but one in particular, if you had to point to one or two indicators, things that you keep your eyes on the most as a canary in the coal mine or something that's hypersensitivity and accurate, what would that be? What would that look like? Yeah, great question. Um, it changes based on kind of how Where the dynamics are evolving. Yep. But I, when I look at the market right now, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that new listings coming to market have been shockingly low, right? So we're about 5% below typical levels which tells me that there is not yet any signs of heavy distress selling. Now, if that were to change, and I would certainly be watching that closely come the spring, um, that's going to be the trigger for the next leg lower. Okay. And so that's going to be incredibly important. So new listings, I also monitor active listings, which is you know the residual of new listings over time. Um, and then I also think just, as a forward indicator, I look at things in the credit card space, credit card delinquencies, credit card roll rates, which is kind of the idea that you, you know, how many delinquent borrowers are rolling into a later stage delinquency, in other words, are having problems kind of getting caught up. Um, very early indicator of credit stress and then payment rates as well on credit cards, right? And, and we don't have to overthink it. Most people are not going to default on their mortgage before they miss some credit card payments. So we're not going to wake up a month from now and Royal Bank is blowing up and there's like no signs of it whatsoever in the credit cards. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there's sort of a natural order of operations here on the credit side. And that's yeah. certainly one that I would I would be watching. Excellent. So the final question for you and for our viewers and audience would be any final uh, points of wisdom, thoughts, suggestions, um, things you'd like to share before we wrap up this excellent interview? This would be directed to potential homeowners, to investors. I mean, who 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 are you asking me to speak to? Um, I, hmm, that's a good question. Um, let's say to potential uh, buyers in the real estate market first, and uh, then we'll screen that question for you know maybe uh, homeowners that own multiple properties would be the second. Oh, great question. Great question. For prospective buyers, um, I, I think this is a great time to just take a wait and see approach. It, it's unlikely, it's not impossible, but it's certainly very unlikely that this market's just going to turn around and rip and get away on you, um, like we've seen in kind of prior downturns. I think that's really what's going to be different this time, is that unlike 2009 and unlike 2015 and 2017, 2020, all the kind of mini downturns that we've seen, um, we've never seen a downturn that's been interest rate driven. They've all been sort of policy driven. And 2009 was an economic downturn, but really incredibly short here in Canada. 
Um, and, and in that case, I just, it's really difficult to envision this market just turning around and ripping back to the highs. And, and so I think you've got time and, and you've been on the balance of probabilities between this market turning around and getting away on you and this market seeing another leg lower in prices due to distressed selling, I think it's far more tilted to the latter. And this is a great time to take a wait and see approach and just kind of see how things play out. For the multiple investor owners, um, I think a lot of that depends on your cash flow characteristics, right? If you're still cash flow positive, or if you've owned a property for a long time and you're sitting equity good, and I mean, you know, whatever. The, the, look, the rental market is still incredibly strong. We've still got very strong population growth, which we didn't get into. Um, and there's no reason to think that that rental trend is going to change anytime soon if we're going to keep bringing in 700,000 people a year, which is what we've done in the last year. Um, so, you know, uh, look, if you can hold on to it, hold on to it. If you're, if you're seeing steep negative payments, get the heck out of it. It's probably not going to get better, right? You probably got more equity deterioration to come. And, and um, it's hard to envision that rates are going back to zero anytime soon. And so get out if you can't, if you can't stomach it. All right. So well, well said, Ben. Um, so maybe just uh, for the, uh, you didn't know I was going to do this, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. A uh, little bit of you. Inf infomercial uh what's your website people can kind of uh, check out uh, your group there and and um maybe you can share that please sure um uh, from any institutional investors that might be listening um you can reach out to me directly ben at northcove.net that's n-o-r-t-h-c-o-v as in victor e.net uh, and I'd be happy to discuss research options with anyone. Um, if you're in the real estate space here in Canada, and whether that's mortgage broker, developer, um, realtor, we do have a, a separate research offering that is obviously priced much differently for folks in that space. And, and you can check that out at edgeanalytics.ca. Excellent. Thank you. Well, listen, Ben, I really appreciate your time today and your insights. Uh, always insightful. Uh, keep Keep up doing the great uh, research that your group does. And uh, thanks once again for uh, spending the time with us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Thane. Good, good to finally catch up with you in person, as it were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks, Ben. Please join us on Smart Wealth uh, next month with, with our special guest, Ben Slager, who's a corporate M&A lawyer in the, in the venture capital and private equity space. And he'll be sharing with us some of the latest trends that he's seen in business uh, uh, activities and acquisitions. So please tune in. Thank you. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Can Accord is a member of the CIPF.